1: bill press pod i'm jason dick deputy editor at cq roll call and i'm guest hosting this week while bill is off this friday's roundtable of journalists will try to make sense of this week's major news stories the last american troops left afghanistan ending a 20-year war a divided supreme court allowed a highly restrictive abortion law to take effect possibly signaling the court's intent to a major challenge to roe versus wade later this year is this cause for celebration for republicans Or could it backfire on them and also fire up Democrats? In California, will the recall campaign replace a popularly elected Governor Gavin Newsom with a right-wing radio talk show host? And that focus on the Golden State unfolded as massive, deadly wildfires consumed the northern part of the state. Those fires and powerful hurricanes lashing the East Coast have brought up questions on climate change and how politicians might address it in the $3.5 trillion soft infrastructure bill. Joining me today to talk about these topics and more are Catherine Tully-McManus, Congressional Reporter for Politico. Hello, Catherine.
2: Hi, Jason.
1: Jeff Dufour, Editor-in-Chief of National Journal. Morning, Jeff. Good morning, Jason. And Melanie Mason, National Political Correspondent for the Los Angeles Times. Uh, thanks thanks again for all of you for joining us. Uh, Catherine, this is your first time on the Bill Press Pod. We had a few... Uh, uh times on bill press's old radio show but this is your first time on the pod why don't you introduce yourself to our
3: listeners
2: hello um i'm a reporter for politico uh recently i spent a long time at Hero call working for our host jason um <laughs> and it's great to be reunited i'm actually on vacation this week but miss jason so decided this is a great way to reconnect
1: <laughs> oh, thank you, Catherine. And I, I would, uh, I would respectfully, um, uh, just sort of uh, go back and just say that I worked with Catherine. Catherine did not work for me. We worked together. We were colleagues. Uh, I just happened to be her manager. <laughs> so, you're too, you're too kind, Catherine. Um, all right, let's let's start talking about um, Afghanistan. The uh, August thirty first was the deadline uh, imposed deadline by the Biden administration. Uh, to get out of all of our troops out and and in the evacuation of American citizens and our allies there, uh, it led to some real chaotic scenes uh, throughout August of uh, people desperately trying to get out of Afghanistan at the Kabul airport. There were 13 uh, service members killed in a suicide bomber attack, uh, and and we. Sort of dealt with a lot of this as we were, as people were anew beginning to think about Afghanistan uh, at at the tail end of this twenty-year war. Um, Catherine, let's start with you. One thing that is uh, is interesting is that the. Even though we're, we're technically on recess uh, in, in, the, in the House and Senate, the House Republicans uh, were, were around the Capitol, and uh, Kevin McCarthy, the House Minority Leader, uh, and several of his colleagues who are ranking members on, on committees of jurisdiction like armed services and so forth were very vocal in, in a lot of their criticism of what was going on in Afghanistan.
2: Absolutely. They were out in force this week with criticism for Biden, his administration, um, and the handling of this exit, Uh, without full acknowledgement, frankly, that this exit was set in place by the previous administration and that Trump had the Republicans on Capitol Hill rally behind him for that exit for the most part. there, There were some critics and defectors, of course. Um, But there is criticism on both sides of the aisle because of, one, how quickly this moved and, two, how chaotic it got on the ground in Kabul and, of of course, even worse, across Afghanistan for folks who could not make it to Kabul. Um, And, yes, the House Republicans specifically are talking about impeachment they're talking about what consequences can they bring upon Biden and his administration, especially looking forward to if they take control of the house um, after the midterm elections, what uh, can they brought upon Biden?
1: And uh, we uh, Biden seemed to, you know, sort of realize the, you know, the enormity of this moment, too. On Tuesday, uh, he gave a speech at the White House. We have a, a clip from that uh, in which he addressed the, the end of the war. But it wasn't exactly a uh, sort of a valedictory thing. It was it was a pretty impassioned speech uh, for, for the most part. Let's listen to a little bit of that.
3: My fellow Americans, the war in Afghanistan is now over. When I was running for president, I made a commitment to the American people that I would end this war. Today, I've honored that commitment. I refuse to continue the war that was no longer in the service of the vital national interests of our people. And most of all, after 20,744 American servicemen and women injured and the loss of 2,461 American personnel, including 13 lives, lost just this week. I refuse to open another decade of warfare in Afghanistan. We've been a nation too long at war.
1: Jeff, that uh, you know, I mean, that, that was that was a part of a, a pretty long speech. He also got into some of the statistics on how many people were evacuated. But with with that speech, I mean, we're seeing kind of a culmination of where Biden has been on Afghanistan for quite a while, right?
4: We are. Um, the problem is we're coming off an administration that was solely obsessed with optics and, and, and with messaging. Remember all the times that, that, that Trump was quoted as saying, oh, I'm not going to do that. It makes, It's going to make me look weak or something to that effect. Um, it, we've seen an episode now with this administration where there seems to be scant attention to, to optics and, and the way things look. Uh, this, this comes down to uh, him hanging out at Camp David or at his home in Delaware uh, as the crisis was unfolding. Uh, our own George Condon, our, our White House correspondent, pointed out that since July 1st, Biden has uh, uttered almost 28,000 words in, across seven speeches on Afghanistan. And Tuesday was the first time it felt like he, he got it right and, and he struck the message. Uh, but even still, uh, he's got this insistence that because we finally pulled out that everything's fine, uh, he continues to insist that the chaos was inevitable. Uh, he was he was touting the, the, the impressive numbers of the airlift and they were impressive. Uh, but it was as if he was trying to excuse what came before, as if that excuses what came before. Uh, And and I think the numbers start to bear this out. Just before we started recording, the Washington Post um, has a big poll out this morning, which is one of the first big polls we've seen that has the the Afghanistan situation baked into the numbers. And Biden, frankly, is down in Trump territory now, 44 percent approval, 51 percent disapproval. And even among those who Support the pullout, which is which is most Americans about seventy percent. Uh, most of them do not support the way that that Biden handled it.
1: And Melanie, I, I wonder, uh, you know, is this. Is, is the president taking a risk, you know, as Jeff said, you know, with the optics of just almost overexposure? I mean, it seems like, you know, we, we used to kind of make fun of uh, this thing like, oh, Trump's doing another press conference. It must be a day that ends. in why? Uh, I mean, like now we see Biden speaking almost every single day. Is there a danger of overexposure, especially with all this, you know, kind of rough news happening?
0: I think that's definitely the case, because the truth is, is that, as Jeff alluded to, hitting the tone on this is basically impossible, right? I mean, you can't be valedictory about ending a 20-year war where a lot of the original aims uh, were not accomplished. Uh, but at the same time, having day after day of of really rough news of somber news and putting your face next to that name, um, that's going to have sort of an immediate impact on the polling numbers. Uh, I think what the real question is, is because we see sort of this two things can be true at once in the polling numbers, right? Americans broadly supporting the pullout of the war, the end of the war, but not necessarily supporting how it was executed. I think that the question for the White House is, what do Americans remember more six months from now or a year from now when we're heading into the midterms? Are they going to feel relief that this decades-long military commitment has finally wound down? uh, Or is there still going to be sort of these searing images um, of those final days and memories of the 13 service members that were killed? And so clearly the White House has put this bet on Americans' The long-term sort of impact being uh, them remembering the broader question, which is that Americans wanted to see this war end. Uh, But right now, he's really in the thick of it, because we're in the immediate news cycle, which is really rough.
1: And speaking of the news cycle, uh, you know, we were, you know, sort of all digesting this, the end of this war, uh, the aftermath of it. We had like, you know, this you know, kind of weird situation where, you know, an, another member of Congress tried to get into Afghanistan. Uh, Mark Wayne Mullen, a Republican from Oklahoma, you know, was was threatening embassy staff, uh, according to Washington Post reporting to uh, in in uh other countries to try to get safe passage there. It was just, it seemed very chaotic. And then uh, on, on late on Wednesday night, right before midnight, the Supreme court uh, on a five, four decision decided to not take action to stay a Texas uh, law SB eight that uh, highly restricts uh, abortions in uh, after six weeks, and also sets up uh, this uh, a bounty system where people can sue uh, the people, anyone who uh, was uh, instrumental or helpful in in somebody getting securing an abortion, and all of a sudden the narrative kind of changed. Uh, Catherine. Do you think that this this sort of situation, like, I mean, th- this, this is obviously something that, like, um, that anti-abortion activists have been wor- looking for for years, and they w- waited for this moment for the Supreme Court with this sort of Supreme Court lineup, where, uh, you know, one of the dissenters was the chief justice, who is a fairly conservative man in general. Um, do, did this really, this seemed to really change the narrative all of a sudden, you know, at Wednesday, Wednesday at midnight, and then the next two days, you know, we've been discussing abortion politics,
2: Absolutely. I mean, there was so much discussion during the Trump Supreme Court nominations, of which there were three, which is significant, um, about the fate of Roe versus Wade on the Supreme Court with conservative justices being nominated. Um, I specifically remember Justice Brett Kavanaugh saying during his confirmation that um, regardless of his personal views on abortion, that he saw Roe as what he called basically a super precedent, um, which we do not really know what he meant by that, but clearly um, it, there's significant uh, complications coming forward as we look towards uh, what other states try to do, whether they um, you know, try to replicate this Texas model uh, or... Whether Congress, Democrats in Congress have such slim majorities right now that frankly, it's not clear what they could do about this. And I, I'm not convinced that abortion is an issue that would have a lot of impact on what some people are talking about, which is a change in filibuster rules for the 50 50 Senate. Um, it's not completely clear that there's a majority for expanding abortion rights, even with. Democrats technically having that razor-thin majority, um, and in the future, Republicans could uh, take much more significant action to curb access on a national scale from Capitol Hill.
1: And and Jeff, I I wonder like we'll, we'll get back to some of the discussion of the of the politics and you know maybe the midterms and so forth, but. You know, you and I have—you uh, know—I've have worked together for quite a long time uh, at National Journal, and yes. and uh, just known each other, uh, going back to you know more than twenty years now. Um, aside from Bush versus Gore. I mean, is the way that this this decision came down quite literally in the dead of night, on a fi- in a five four decision? Do you do you remember a time when the Supreme Court looked so? Um, I mean, just shady. I mean, they literally were using the shadow docket in a midnight decision. I mean, do you recall a time when it it was as controversial or as weird an appearance?
4: Uh- Short answer, no. Uh, and you mentioned Roberts, and it's it's worth noting Roberts. Uh, he's a conservative, but he's also an institutionalist, and he didn't like the way this, this, this went down. Um, and I think you also have to put this in context of the last 10 or 20 years of Supreme Court precedent on this issue, because states have tried a lot of backdoor ways to ban abortions recently. They said doctors must have admitting privileges at local hospitals, or the hallways in clinics must be X feet wide, uh, all manner of regulations on the physical structure of the clinics themselves. And the courts slapped most of them down, uh, in many cases even before they got a full hearing at, at SCOTUS. But here you have this really novel and and odd bounty system, and they don't take action. Every time I read this, I keep thinking of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where Leonardo DiCaprio's character used to star in a show called bounty (laughs) law. And that's that's pretty much what this is, bounty law. Um, If you think your neighbor had an abortion, you can sue her doctor or anyone else involved, and they would have to pay the penalty to you. What could possibly go wrong with that? Uh, And it also makes me think of just how much the libertarian wing of the GOP has been marginalized. This is a party that that 10 years ago had a robust libertarian component, and uh, it's almost always stood broadly for for ordered liberty. As long as the, the institutions of society, churches, schools, clubs, whatever, can keep order, we should default to personal liberty. This this feels like the opposite of that. Uh, codifying a system of informing on people it feels more like the like the East German Stasi than any sort of Anglo-American conception of of, of ordered liberty. Uh, so I, I think there's there's a lot more to be said on this, and it's but it's probably going to be said when the SCOTUS takes up Mississippi's abortion ban, Dobbs versus Jackson. Uh, later this fall, I think they're probably waiting for that, frankly, right, to issue a real
1: and ruling, for sure. I mean, and, and this is and the Mississippi law, you know, it, it almost makes the uh, it looks almost tame compared to Texas uh, in comparison. It's a 15-week right. uh, abortion ban, right? Um, and one one thing that struck me was that you know once people woke up and realized that this was happening, even though you know the the, the court had faced a deadline previously, you know that the day before, and the law was in effect in Texas, that the, the, the White House seemed to relish uh, that they were going to get involved in this fight. Let's, uh, we've got a clip, actually, from, from yesterday's press briefing, uh, where the White House press secretary, Jen Psaki, uh, is, is responding to a, a question about, uh, a, a, about this.
2: He believes that it's up to a woman to make those decisions
0: uh, and up to a woman to make those decisions with her doctor. I know you've never faced those choices, nor have you ever been pregnant. But for women out there who have faced those choices, this is an incredibly difficult thing. The president believes their rights should be respected.
1: She's saying that to a, uh, a male uh, correspondent in the, in the White House briefing room. Melanie, I, I, I wonder, you know, just— this this seems to be you know one 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 way to definitely change the conversation about uh, uh, you know Afghanistan and sort of the tough you know things that are going on there, but also this is um, this is a way to really remind people of the consequences of elections right as we're getting involved in the midterm campaign season.
0: Definitely, and this gave the White House and just Democrats more broadly something to uh, to unify around to focus on to get people to stop talking about what, again, has truly been just a brutal news week, news month uh, for, for the Democrats. And this is something that now, I mean, I, I think that this is how the parties have really polarized around this issue over the last couple decades. This is now really an issue um, that has a lot of unanimity among the Democratic Party. And for a party that is um, kind of having a lot of, of strains within itself. This is an issue that they can all rally around. I thought it was notable is just as the White House and Democrats wanted to talk about really nothing else than this, it was striking to me how conservatives um, and Republicans really almost kind of played down what we saw. Uh, and I, I, it felt like it was this very asymmetric uh, reaction to this news. It was either the de facto overturning of Roe versus Wade if you talk to liberals, and then if you talk to conservatives, it was just the sort of like incremental sort of procedural step. I mean, th- it was interesting to see people uh, uh, anti-abortion groups reminding us, well, we're still in litigation. This is still to be decided. And I think there's two ways to read that. I think the first, and in, in just sort of a kind of sincere policy sense is that uh, so, you know social conservatives have been burned before when it comes to uh, abortion at the Supreme Court. And even though I think that they uh, are quite pleased by this ruling, the fact that these abortions are um, severely restricted now in the second most populous state in the country, I mean, that is certainly aligning with the goals that they have. Uh, but they remember the fact that there were a lot of times where these cases were heard before the Supreme Court, uh, thought there were opportunities to chip away or even overturn Roe v. Wade, and that didn't happen. So I think until Dobbs comes down, which is more directly taking aim at this question of Roe v. Wade, Uh, I think that social conservatives don't really want to uh, get their hopes up or perhaps count their chickens. But I think there's also a question of what this means politically, and the, the truth is is that American opinions on abortion they're very they're pretty evenly divided. Uh, if you ask the question pro life, pro choice, but there have been consistent majorities for people not wanting to see Roe v.ersus Wade be overturned. And while people don't want abortions without any restrictions at all to be legal, uh, generally people would like to have some abortions be legal. And what we have in this Texas law is extreme restrictions. There's not even an exception for the cases of rape and incest. So I think if we're looking at uh, the, the polls here and how people can be polarized, you have a really, really extremely tough uh, Im- uh, abortion law that's now the at the heart of this debate. And I'm not entirely sure that this is where conservatives want the political debate to be, because I don't think that it necessarily reflects the views of the majority of the country.
1: Right. And I, I mean... Uh, well, I should say too that I mean, even though the midterms are more than a year off, um, you know the the there are a couple of uh, there are elections going on in the off year, particularly in Virginia. Uh, there is a governor's race. Terry McAuliffe, the former Democratic governor, is running against Glenn Youngkin, uh, a Republican who has has been uh, you know sort of running this very steady race and being very careful. And the politics of that Catherine are, you know, we're sort of thrust uh, into the, um, into the forefront. Uh, Cecile Richards, a former uh, head of Planned Parenthood, sent out a fundraising note that that said like, hey, uh, this is important in this state. This could happen in Virginia if Glenn, you know, Youngkin is, is, uh, is elected. I mean, were you, were you surprised at just how quickly this whipped up uh, in, in races that will be decided very shortly?
2: In terms of at the state level, I was not surprised that this became something that was a talking point in states across the country. Uh, States with Republican led legislatures have been taking action to restrict abortion on the state level in the anticipation that Roe v. Wade, um, maybe be, you know, overturned, struck down, um, so that they would already have restrictive state level laws in place, um, were that to happen. Um, and for other states where there are big decisions being made, you know, California with the recall, Virginia with a governor's race, governor's races across the country. Um, this is an issue that is going to, uh, activate, uh, significant portions of, the electorate, electorate on both sides of the aisle. It, it's a, it's one of the biggest divisive topics that exists in American politics today. Um, and I, I do see it being an issue going forward into 2020, the midterms, governor's races, et cetera. And frankly, taking redistricting into account, of course, abortion doesn't impact redistricting, but looking at those calculations as uh, House members look at what their their constituencies are going to look like.
1: And, and Jeff, one thing that occurs to me about Texas is that, I mean, there's been a lot of speculation that Greg Abbott, the the governor who's running for reelection next year, you know, was sort of pushing a lot of these, this law, the, you know, voter ID restrictions and so forth to shore up his conservative bona fides. But like, you know, Texas is, is a conservative place, but it's not as conservative as it was. I mean, is this a, you know, is this a kind of thing where they could be beginning to overplay their hand?
4: Yes, um, I would point out that in, in midterm elections, typically what we've seen in historical precedent-wise, the party out of power, and Republicans are very much out of power right now. Democrats have the trifecta. Um, the party out of power tends to be much more motivated in terms of, of activism, turnout, et cetera. Uh, what Texas and the Supreme Court in effect have done is serve this issue up on a platter to fire up Democrats uh, on an equal level, if not more. Um, this is exactly what, what they needed in terms of fundraising, in terms of, of volunteerism, grassroots activism, you name it, between now and November 2022, that's what you're going to see. Um, I don't know if it would be enough to, to knock off the likes of, of, of Greg Abbott, but in certainly in, in swing House districts, uh, this is exactly what the, what the Democratic Campaign Committee uh, would like to see.
1: And uh, that will lead us into our next topic, uh, which is California's upcoming election. But first, we're going to take a quick break here on the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. I'm Jason Dick, sitting in for Bill, along with Catherine Tully McManus, Melanie Mason, and Jeff Dufour. <laughs>
3: This podcast is brought to you by the Laborers Union of North America, or LIUNA, L-I-U-N-A. Over half a million strong, the members of the Laborers Union, uh, active in the construction area. That's their long suit, if you will, rebuilding roads and schools and high rises. And uh, boy, are they ready to rebuild our infrastructure as soon as that infrastructure bill is passed by Congress and signed by the president, active in the energy area, building everything from solar collectors to wind turbines, the new energy field, as well as old-fashioned pipelines, and active in the government arena as well, particularly in the healthcare sector, all under the leadership of President Terry O'Sullivan. We salute the members of the Labor's Union, thank them for their good work. Building America. Thank them for their support of the Bill Press pod and direct you to their website to learn more at liuna, L-I-U-N-A, liuna.org.
0: Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job?
1: From our break, thank you, Catherine Tully mcmanus Congressional Reporter for Politico, Jeff Dufour, Editor-in-Chief of National Journal, and Melanie Mason, National Political Correspondent for the Los Angeles Times. I'm Jason Dick, Deputy Editor of CQ Roll Call. Uh, we we finished off uh, that that segment of the program talking about Texas. Let's go to the next most populous, the biggest uh, state in the, in the country, California, uh, of Governor Gavin Newsom. What's the status of the race as we're uh, as we're only a couple of weeks away from uh, from the from the date?
0: We're only a couple of weeks away from the date, but the truth is is that you know the recall is is happening as we speak. Uh, California did all mail ballots. so everybody has their ballot now, and ballots are starting to be returned. And so really instead of election day, which is September 14th, it's been election month. Um, and that's been so interesting, I think, to see how it shapes the conversation around this race. And it, I mean the, the quick recap is that if you had asked me in the spring, would Gavin Newsom have much of a race in the recall, uh, I would have said, no, California is a is a broadly democratic state. There hadn't really been much of a Republican uh, challenger that the uh, conservatives could rally around. It really looked like uh, Newsom was doing well. And then there were some polls that showed that that things seemed to be tightening. I think a lot of that was based on whether uh, Democrats were actually engaged in what was going on in the recall. Uh, Republicans were fired up. And so we did see uh, this major enthusiasm gap. And I think that that gave Democrats out here a little bit of agita of, oh, gosh, can this actually happen? Could we see a Republican governor in the state of California? And could that Republican governor uh, be Larry Elder, uh, who is the right-wing talk talk show host. I think what we're seeing now, and we've seen that both in recent polling and also seeing how the ballots are being returned so far, is that it looks like Democrats woke up. And so we are seeing uh, now a little bit more to the uh, reverting to California's uh, typical liberal lean. Uh, Their Democrats are way ahead in ballot return. We are seeing now that they are paying attention to this race, and so I think that people think that the uh, equilibrium has has shifted back in Newsom's favor. Although you know we've all been there before, where we thought that we knew the dynamic of an election and then can be surprised. So I'm not I'm not making any predictions, but I think that uh, what seemed midsummer to be uh, a surprisingly close race appears to perhaps be tracking back. Uh, towards what we had expected all along
1: yeah we've uh we've actually got a clip it's it's actually a little uh it, it's not a the most recent clip of Larry Elder, uh, but the, it, one thing that we did see it was a shift that Newsom and his allies were beginning to focus on Elder and consider this a two-person race. Even though the the rules of the recall are kind of weird, there's there a, f- a first question is should the governor be recalled, and if the governor is recalled, then they go to this uh, second slate of of candidates. Uh, but but Newsom has been really trying to define Elder as the alternative. It's, if Basically saying, if not me, here's this guy, and this clip did, probably did not help Larry Elder.
3: I just don't believe I have the stomach, the temperament, the personality, the drive, the willingness to deal with these doofy in Sacramento for the next several years of my life. No, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna run.
1: It's like a gift from the gods, right, Catherine?
2: <laughs> I mean, that's pretty wild. <laughs> <laughs> we usually, we usually have the inverse, which is people you know, in power saying, no, 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 I'm not ready to retire. I'm not ready to retire. I'm going to retire. Uh, this is, this is, yeah, I don't want the job. I don't want the job. Wait a minute. Now I, not, I do I'm, want I'm the not, job.
1: Yeah, I'm not qualified. Don't, don't, don't vote for this man. I mean, who knows? Maybe, you know, that, that was the, uh, uh, the, you know, somebody somewhere will say like, see, he's, he's a man of humility. <laughs> um jeff uh, is i that's a, a word that i did not know existed but uh perhaps you have some light on it is, is Dufi the uh not just the plural of doofuses but is that also uh the plural for for your family name too uh, i
4: hope not <laughs> i certainly hope not uh, what's
1: uh what I, what I mean like we um you know we I, in the back of my mind is the 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 um the recall of Gray Davis back in uh, the early 2000s. And, you know, something that was just so different was that, you know, Larry Elder for uh, as, as long as he's been around and he is a known quantity in conservative circles and so forth, he's not exactly Arnold Schwarzenegger.
4: <laughs> no. and I, Again, we see a case of Republicans not being able to unify behind the strongest candidate. And, and like you said, this is an unusual election. So it's not exactly apples to apples with a normal primary. Um, But they had Republicans had Kevin Falconer waiting in the wings. This is a guy who had executive experience as the mayor of San Diego and a pretty centrist record, Uh, the kind of Republican that the average left-leaning Californian could probably stomach, uh, especially if they were disillusioned with Newsom. And instead, as, as you point out, now it effectively becomes a binary choice between Newsom and Larry Elder, who I would point out also has domestic violence charges and a history of disparaging comments about women, which are now being used in in attack ads everywhere. Uh, but also, I should say that the Democrats in California are not resting on their laurels. They did wake up. Um, they, they have hundreds of thousands of volunteers knocking on doors. They're spending a lot more money than, than Republicans. And they are taking this seriously as a, as a legitimate campaign and, and, a, and a, a, a seat that they have to defend.
1: And and Melanie, you know, we've got these two fires going on, the the Dixie and Calder fires, uh, you know, the, over, that have just raged across the state, you know, for, you know, the last, you know, the Couple, you know, months or, or or month, and you know this provides Newsom with the opportunity to you know be a governor to, to sort of help direct um, aid and 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 show that he can run the state, but also it, I mean. Not not to be grim, but it also shows that there are consequences there to, to being a governor. Um, you know, this is a this is something that is really kind of you know run out of control for a while. These fires and it takes the you know it, it, this isn't a time to maybe switch horses, right?
0: Right, and I think that that is uh, certainly especially since you know Kevin Faulkner, um, who probably is the is the Republican with the most governing experience, um, is is lagging in the polls. The idea that. Um, a, a talk show host who would be uh, pretty oppositional to a very democratic legislature um, having to navigate things like a wildfire out, out here. I mean, I think that that would give a lot of voters pause. I also think that the, the fires, though, almost kind of crystallized how Newsom got here in the first place. And you can argue is this fair or not. Um, but a lot of where the fires where we're seeing, if you overlay the map to where the recall was most popular, these are pockets of red, rural California uh, that, quite frankly, have felt ignored in the state for a long time. They don't have a lot of clout in the state legislature. They don't have very big populations. And their political leanings uh, are different than most of the state. Uh, and so we have seen. I, I do think that if if you are seeing Republicans, um, at least legislative Republicans, try and coalesce around certain messages, uh, one of those is the fact that there hasn't really they feel neglected when it comes to uh, fire prevention and fire safety. The truth is is that disasters like this in California, even though we have been having fire for centuries, millennia. Um, it's really hard to find the political will to make the investments in advance of fire uh, to, to be preventative a lot of things are sort of clean up after the fact and this has been a problem not just for Gavin Newsom but for Jerry Brown and California governors um, on you know into the past uh, and so I do think that that in some ways we're seeing um, in these photos, in the loss that we're seeing of, of property and lives, um, kind of a distillation of where there are these kind of two Californias. I mean, I'm here in Los Angeles, and the truth is, is that, um, you know, knock on wood, we're still kind of early in fire season. But we haven't had one of those horrible ravaging fires where, you know, the—, the air quality is terrible and you feel like there's ash raining from the sky down here. Um, But if I was living up in rural California, you're now basically living months of your life in fear that uh, you can have a fire that winds whip up and all of a sudden, you know, your life turns upside down. Uh, And so I think that uh, while Newsom gets the opportunity to fly into the fire zone and talk about how he's going to, you know, he's he's governing, he's going to be the man in charge. I also think that this kind of hammers home that California, just like the country, faces gigantic problems. And I do think that there is um, an uneasy sense of discontent, maybe even among Democrats. Not that they necessarily dislike Gavin Newsom, but I don't think anybody in the state feels that things are going great right now. It may not be Gavin Newsom's fault. He can't be blamed for climate change. He can't be blamed for the coronavirus, but he is the guy in charge. And so I think that that's why you're seeing a campaign that is so— so laser focused on Larry Elder and more broadly the Republicans, because I don't think that a jubilant look at my record, look at how well I'm governing message right now would really resonate with the mood of the state, because the mood of the state is kind of bad.
1: And speaking of climate change, I mean, like this, this is you know something that we've been warned about for for years. That climate change was going to bring more extreme weather. That was going to lead to more wildfires. Is leading to more violent storms, like the hurricane uh, Hurricane Ida that we saw this past week that hit you know first the the southeast and uh, Louisiana and Mississippi, and and then just has caused uh, a wide you know uh, array of death and destruction in in the um, on the East coast, um, you know, we, we just, we're, we're really dealing with this sort of Bad time right now, Catherine. You know the 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 main argument by progressives in Congress for a three point five trillion dollar infrastructure follow up plan. You know the soft infrastructure they're talking about is. I mean, a big part of that is incentives for uh, to d- address climate change. Uh, do you think that the wildfires in California and the and the hurricanes and the destruction that they've wrought uh, in the East Coast is is going to give some impetus to to that three point five trillion dollar Package.
2: I do think that it, it, it has the potential to change the conversation a little bit. Of course, there are still staunch holdouts um, in the moderate, the centrist place in the Democratic uh, Party right now on Capitol Hill. Kirsten Cinema, Joe Manchin, the moderate Democrats in the House who are saying absolutely not. Three point five trillion is simply not going to happen if it requires their vote. Um, but something that I think could change the calculation is if there is broad, um, understanding that there is a need for supplemental emergency funding for the array of natural disasters occurring right now across the country, um, I had a friend say we have a fire coast and a flood coast right now, um, non East coast and West coast. Um, and I think that having that as a new factor in what has been a protracted fight over the same topics for months now about this massive social spending bill, um, it, it it could it could change the scales a little bit um something that i do have an eye on is that there's still hesitancy among some republicans to acknowledge this as a massive issue that is driven by behavior of humans um even as recently as a couple months ago uh, the top republican on senate Um, Appropriations, Richard Shelby, when asked about a different climate disaster, was kind of pointing to like seasonality, cyclical nature of weather, as opposed to climate change. And so getting those dollars through remains a big challenge. Um, Something that I do think I'm keeping an eye on is the timeline uh, that aid might be needed that could change the calculation. With the current deadlines that have been set um, for later this month to get the reconciliation package done and out the door, uh, there are lawmakers now saying that we thought would be done in September, but my guess is that we won't be and that that this could drag on. And that inhibits the aid, potential aid situation, et cetera. Um, Frankly, I don't know how these fires and floods are going to infect the conversation, but there's no question that um, progressives will be using this as um, a, a political tool to move the conversation forward on climate change and to look folks who do not want to spend that quantity of money on infrastructure in the eye and say, are you telling me that New York doesn't need uh, a flood plan, and that California doesn't need a fire situation update.
1: Yeah, and and Jeff, I I wonder like the, the earlier in the week when New Orleans got hit, um, you know the, this is a per- fairly Republican state. Um, you know the delegation was down there. Senator Bill Cassidy, who's a Republican, uh, w- you know used the you know some images of him sort of knee deep in water to push for the. The first, the initial smaller infrastructure package that that Catherine had uh, mentioned that there's a deadline in September. I wonder if the if they do, since they have this deadline, you know, in the House to to vote on that uh, at the end of September. I wonder if that will will become the. The sort of the fail safe, and then they'll say like, "Well, we've addressed it." I mean, do you think that there is the the danger of if they if they wrap up infrastructure and they maybe put together some sort of supplemental uh, deal to address immediately New York, New Jersey, Louisiana, Mississippi that they that takes the priority sort of status away from that three point five trillion dollar package?
4: Uh, it could. I would I would point out that in the particular case of of Louisiana. Remember the difference between uh, Katrina and Ida is that uh, this time they they rebuilt the levees in the meantime, and the levees held. Uh, Obviously, we had big problems in the rest of the state, but New Orleans in general did pretty well. And what was the difference between then and now? Infrastructure. Uh, Right. They spent the money to to shore up the levees, and I'm sure other states are going to be asking for for something similar between now and the next major hurricane, whenever that might be. Could be two months from now at this rate, but we'll see. Um, I would say there is an there is an X factor in in the House, uh, and and his name is is Peter DeFazio, the Transportation and Infrastructure Chairman, um, who has been complaining for for some time that he hasn't really had his say. Um, because he had an uh, he had a, a, tra- a surface transportation bill that largely got ignored and and folded into the larger uh, 1.2 trillion dollar plan hard infrastructure. I think now it's less likely maybe that Pelosi just rubber stamps the Senate bill on the hard infrastructure. I think, especially if it looks like the 3.5 trillion dollar reconciliation bill, is going to get pared back or, or, or is not going to get the hearing that they hope it's going to have, you might see more climate change mitigation uh, measures and spending folded into that hard infrastructure bill, and, and and they may try to make the Senate swallow that.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's going to be, one thing we do know, it's going to be a very busy September uh, with all these issues sort of swirling around. Um, so I, uh, I, I feel like we could talk about it a while, but uh, I, I, I am very curious uh, at this point, after this huge uh, week of news, what your favorite stories are uh, that don't necessarily have to do with Afghanistan, abortion, uh, and natural and man-made disasters. Uh, Catherine, why don't we start with you about your favorite story? of the week.
2: Okay. Well, my favorite story doesn't fit into those parameters, parameters. Jason. Uh, (laughs) As I said, I was on vacation this week. So my news consumption was less than normal, but something that I have worked on for many years is, um, looking at the life and work of staff in Congress and the community on Capitol Hill and a story from NPR, uh, earlier this week, on August 30th really blew me away. Uh, It's a three minute listen, would recommend. Um, It was about a staffer in the district in Missouri who worked during the day at Emanuel Cleaver, Congressman Emanuel Cleaver's field office in Higginsville um, and previously had worked on Capitol Hill for Armed Services Committee and in recent weeks has spent his days in the office or working uh, for the congressman and his nights on the phone, sitting outdoors on his farm, talking to people in Afghanistan who are trying to get out and trying to find their pathway out of the country. Um, U.S. allies, people who had helped the U.S. military and others. um, And... There's something about the audio function of it being an NPR story with the crickets during the interview. Um, and this fact that I cannot let go, which is that he spent his nights working outdoors on those phone calls to Afghanistan so that his kids wouldn't hear the real distress in those phone calls. And he doesn't want his kids to have a full understanding of what, is going on 7,000 miles away. Um, and for me, it just uh, really took me outside the beltway, but still to what congressional staff have been stepping up to do in recent weeks to try to get folks out of Afghanistan. Um, that is probably not like the fun, funny, uplifting story you were looking for. Um, but it really uh, hit me hard and uh, kind of zeroed yeah. in on the that life of people working in Congress, uh, that I'm so interested in.
1: Oh, and, and, you know, no, it sounds like a great story. Um, and, and I, uh, you know, one of the things that I, I loved working with you at, at, uh, at our, at CQ Roll Call was the fact that you found those stories too. So that's, that, that sounds great. Um, I'm gonna look it up. Uh,
0: Melanie, how about you? Uh, well, it was a rough news week. So there are not a ton of stories I love. And I will, I will tell you that I clicked on this story as fast as I saw the headline, because I thought that it would be like a kind of a fluffy story, which turned out not to be, but this is about, um, a Beverly Hills boutique called Kitson, uh, which might be familiar to people who, like I did read us weekly, pretty religiously in the early 2000s. Uh, it was a very popular, like celebrity shopping spot, uh, for like Paris Hilton and Lindsay Lohan and the like, and it was always in the tabloids. Um, and it has turned into, um, The owner has turned into this very political, um, very pro-Newsom recall, uh, sometimes dabbling a little bit in conspiracy theories. But I mean, he essentially got, I know, the the sort of internet parlance of red-pilled, right? I mean, somebody who has really kind of shifted hard right in their politics and has become incredibly vocal about it, which, as you can imagine, in Beverly Hills, California, although Beverly Hills is actually more conservative than I think people understand it to be, it's still a little jarring when you drive by the store now and see window displays that are um, like deeply, deeply conservative, deeply anti newsome uh, and again, a pretty blue city. Uh, so the 2000s uh, Us Weekly, Reader and Me uh, clicked on that story thinking it'd be kind of a frothy, uh, like, you know, can you believe what happened to this store? It actually turned into a really nuanced, interesting portrayal um, of how people kind of go through political conversions, uh, what happens in both their personal life and a lot of external factors. Uh, and so it's both sort of a, a personal story of this business owner and I think also a really good macro look at how polarized and how sort of toxic our political debate has been so um it definitely ended up being a little bit more weighty than i thought it would be but uh, if anybody recognizes the name of that store and remembers the paparazzi photos uh of celebrities shopping there uh, about 15 years ago uh, i'd recommend reading it i found it to be really interesting
4: awesome (laughs) jeff how about you yes uh you you correctly assume that my my first uh choice for this was going to be mark wayne mullen (laughs) <laughs> but we already mentioned him. Uh, that's okay. I have a backup. Um, Jacob Chansley, the QAnon shaman has cut a deal with prosecutors to plead guilty to a set of charges. Uh, you, all our listeners probably remember this guy. He's the one who showed up at the Capitol on January 6th with a, with a headdress with horns, uh, furs and face paint. He was all over the photos but it was what his lawyer, Albert Watkins, said that really struck me. Watkins represents not just Chansley, but several accused rioters. According to the Huff Post, uh, he has compared the rioters to cultists who drank the Kool Aid, quote unquote, and called them, quote, effing short bus people. And he's their lawyer. <laughs> anyway, he said, quote, Mr. Chansley, a long avowed and practicing shaman, has repudiated the Q previously assigned to him and requests future references to him be devoid of the letter Q. So the subtext there is that he repudiates the Q part of the moniker, but not the shaman part of the moniker. He's all in on the shaman part of it. That blew me away. Um, so, yeah, we'll, 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 just, we'll just leave it there.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yes, we, yes we will um my my um my favorite story was a, a little bit of a combo and also a a, a kind of a, a weird like admission to myself that i I wasn't remembering the a very important part of a previous story and that's the um, the death of Ed asner uh, at 91 this was uh you know the the longtime actor I mean he was the the um, you know new You know, had just all these like iconic roles, but probably none more than Lou Grant, uh, the news director uh, for the Minneapolis television station and the Mary Tyler Moore show and the news, the city editor at the Los Angeles Tribune uh, fictional newspaper for Lou Grant, a a, a spinoff show from Mary Tyler Moore. He was the first. Um, first actor to get an Emmy for both a comedy and a drama uh, Emmy for the same role, but in two series. And one of the things that sort of struck me as I was reading some of the obits and so forth was that um, in Emily Longer's obituary of Asner, she's recounting the the final scene of the Mary Tyler Moore Show, and this is a scene that I know I've seen several times. And uh, it you know it, it, it's the it's the staff coming together and and hugging, and Asner saying, "I treasure you all," and then the very last shot is Mary Tyler Moore turning out the lights, and some somehow what what i missed in 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 the memory of that is that the finale of the show the end of the show was that the the New owners of the television station had fired everybody except for Ted Baxter, the buffoonish uh, bro- uh, broadcaster, the 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 uh, anchor, and they'd fired everybody, including Mary Tyler Moore, Lou Grant, and uh and and they they were coming together because they were all leaving and because they had already been shown the door. And granted, this is this was a comedy in the '70s, and it was also the heyday of, of a lot of American journalism after Watergate and so forth. And just it was just sort of shocking to me that it. Was was uh, it, it was this moment where they had all been, you know, let go, uh, showing that like a lot of the economics of the business uh were have, are the same then as they are now so it is it, it just this like sort of weird reminder uh not just of how good the show was how good asner was in that role uh but also that um you, you have to remember your memories uh or, or double check your memories sometimes because they uh they, sometimes you miss the most important part as i did there um That's going to do it for this edition of the Bill Press Pod. Thank you for listening. Uh, Thank you to our panelists for their time and insight on a very, very busy, uh, crazy week. Catherine Tully McManus, the author of Politico's Huddle newsletter and congressional reporter for Politico, Jeff Dufour, editor-in-chief of National Journal, and Melanie Mason, national political correspondent for the Los Angeles Times. I'm Jason Dick, deputy editor at CQ Roll Call, your guest host. Have a great and safe Labor Day weekend, everybody.